0: Welcome to Composer Talk, I'm your host Matthew Wong. As a film and TV composer, I love talking to others about their backgrounds, composition techniques, music tech, and more. We all watch films, TV, and digital media and know the important role that scoring plays in storytelling. I want to invite you to join me on this adventure to learn more about the artists who are behind the scenes creating the music. If you want to learn more about the people interviewed on this podcast, make sure to follow us on our socials. And if you enjoy Composer Talk, Please take the time to rate and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred listening site is. He's Conquered Realms, scoring Harmon Quest and Boss Baby Back in Business, wrote millennial hits such as the theme song for Wizards of Waverly Place, and is well known as the composer of Rick and Morty, as well as the writer of its songs, including Goodbye Moonman*, Raised Up, and Human Music. Today, I'm lucky to have him as a guest, and the composer is... Ryan Elder. So thank you for being here.
1: Hey, Matt. Thanks <laughs> for having me. That's the best intro I've ever gotten in my life. I you love it. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: so yeah, I just want to start off. So you were born?
1: I was born, it turns out. Yes. Um, thankfully. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you want to start at the very beginning, huh?
0: Sure. I just want to talk about yeah. like,
1: what was were sure, yeah, childhood yeah. like? Yeah. Uh so, I was born in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I lived in Wyoming State actually when I was a young kid until I was in about third grade. But I started playing violin when I was five. I took violin lessons starting at five, which is actually late, as you may know. Um, it's about two years late, maybe, if you want to be really good. Yeah, you missed the Juilliard years. Exactly. Uh, My mom always thought I was going to go to Juilliard, and uh, there was no (laughs) way—that's too much work. (laughs) But uh, I so I studied the violin, and then sort of in the meantime, my dad had a home recording studio. Uh, He was doing MIDI sequencing in the mid '80s, which is pretty early to be doing MIDI sequencing as a hobbyist. He had an old IBM 8086 computer, and we would boot Cakewalk 1.0 off of a five and a quarter inch floppy. And uh, he had some keyboards, a uh, Yamaha DX7, DX100, and uh, drum machine, Elisa's HR16, I think. And we would like make little songs and stuff as I was Great. growing up. So, and he taught you how to use MIDI. Yeah, back totally, then. yeah. And back then there was no mouse. So you were going through with, <laughs> with the arrow keys and like programming in like, oh, I want this note to last this long. There was no visual representation of Jeez. the MIDI at all. It was all just like a spreadsheet basically. Right. It was nuts, um, but it was super fun. And like, I learned how to, you know, create little beats and songs and like, you know, the really very beginnings of, of MIDI sequencing. When you started, was it like covers? Yeah, no, I made songs. I was really into like pop music and boy band. So I had this boy band song that I had written that my dad helped me produce. And we didn't like really, I think there's maybe a recording of just the instrumental somewhere, but no, no vocals. Cause I wasn't really singing yet. And I was like a little kid anyways. Um, but one thing I loved to do was I would use his drum machine to program. Uh, I would like listen to songs on the radio and try to like redo the same drum beat. And like, I specifically remember doing like Madonna's, um, uh, well, justify my love, I think on his drum machine, like we're trying to recreate that beat. Um, and it, so yeah, little things like that was just like part of my childhood growing up. Meanwhile, also taking violin lessons and my family's very musical. My brothers were all in choir growing up and then I joined choir later. I have, I have five brothers. I grew up with four of them. Um, And we all played instruments and sang. And as a family, we would go to church and perform. Gotcha. So you're the whole church band? Matching shirts. Yeah, it was pretty funny. (laughs) (laughs) little dorky kids.
0: Are any of your brothers,
1: like, full-on musicians now, too? No, actually. Um, I have a brother who got a master's degree in playwriting. He was in theater. Uh, My my other brother who's... Actually, I have two brothers that are, like my two stepbrothers are like basically musical. They're like, it's in their blood to be super musical. They can like pick up any instrument and be very proficient at it almost immediately. They just have this musical skill and it runs in their family. It's crazy. And they, um, and those two are not musicians either. It's funny. I was the only one who ended up becoming a musician, but I would say like talent wise, performance wise, those guys are way better than me. Like than always have been. But I think, my introduction to songwriting and production earlier is probably what fueled me getting into what I'm doing. Gotcha. Uh, they weren't as interested in the production side of things until later,
0: mm-hmm. and obviously, your dad was like very into that as well. Uh, totally, so he was yeah. Completely yeah. supportive, I assume.
1: Of course, yeah. My dad, when he, you know, what the reason he started getting into MIDI is because he lived in Wyoming State and he had problems finding band members. <laughs> he wanted to be in a band, but he didn't have any. It was hard to find. Uh, people in his small town to play with so he got his computer and he programmed it to play the backing tracks to his songs and some covers and he would lug his giant computer to nearby bars plug it in hit space bar and just like play his guitar and sing with his computer for at these bars and stuff for his show and he had one woman who would sing with him and that was like their band and uh so yeah he's totally always been into that actually he's like now that he's retired and he's at home he's like I want to get back into recording music so I just I just sent him a new keyboard yesterday actually. Oh, that's so cool. So I guess his touring yeah. days are over then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was never he never really made a career out of it but he always loved it and loved yeah. performing and you know writing his own songs and stuff. Um so then did you like play
0: in bands before going to, well, I know you did,
1: but. Yeah, we're friends. You know, the answers to all these questions, but I'll, I'll repeat them anyways, because this is not for us, is it? Yeah. I was in bands in high school. Um, I was in a, my first band was like a punk band called Davenport. And then I was in like a folky sort of singer songwriter harmony band called the Miralogues. Uh, We played the talent show at high school. Uh, in college, I wasn't really in bands. but I was in so many ensembles that I didn't really have time. Um, you know, I had to be in ensemb- I had to be in ensembles for credit in college, and then I was also in several other where I was playing violin mainly. But I was also in an acapella group. Yeah, well, I checked out another podcast you did recently, and in terms of
0: college, I didn't realize you did these like crazy performances, or like you'd have people read books and just
1: go full volume. Oh yeah, so, <laughs> I must, when did I talk about that? Yeah, I was in an ensemble called New Music Ensemble, where right. it was like very much improvisation, right? But it was sort of in the classical. It was improvisation, but coming from a classical place. So we weren't improvising jazz or rock. We were kind of improvising classical or or at least uh, modern classical. And one of the pieces I wrote was basically making fun of my friend who who uh, was a motor, bit of a motor mouth. And I brought these books and, just random books from the library and put them on stage and everybody in the ensemble grabbed a book and we wandered around the stage reading from our books as loudly as possible <laughs> that was my piece <laughs> that's amazing i feel like that's probably like, it kind of <laughs> sounded cool yeah
0: i'm sure that was yeah, I mean with rick and Morty later
1: you know that sort of like sense of like there's no wrong answers Right. That that ensemble encouraged. And, you know, one of the big things that I had going into college was I had really bad performance anxiety, like hmm. super bad, where I basically, my audition for the orchestra playing violin, I couldn't even get through it because I was shaking so much. I, ha- I used to have really bad, like... Uh, performance anxiety where I would shake a lot, you know violin you can't be shaken. Right Um, and so one of the things that I did to sort of help combat that was be in these ensembles where there were no stakes like the new music ensemble We would you know our concerts we'd perform to like four people. Right. Um, like my friends wouldn't even come, you know (laughs) Because it was not that they weren't that fun, but it was fun for us (laughs) Um, and it was just like these low stakes ways of performing where there were no wrong answers that allowed me to get over that performance anxiety, actually.
0: For sure. I actually think you should take that shaky vibrato now and use that as your signature sound.
1: Well, it's fine. The vibrato hand is fine to be sh- a little shaky, right? It's the bow hand that can't be shaky. You need that to be nice and smooth. Uh, but yeah, it could be maybe I'm just if I just do tremolo the whole time. Right, I do use a lot of tremolo strings on Rick and Morty. I won't lie. I'd say this transition <laughs> They're almost in every cue.
0: So in terms of college, did you go in knowing like exactly what you want to get out of school or did you, I don't know, want to learn about writing specific types of music or?
1: Yeah, you know, the college I went to was not a music school. It's a liberal arts college in Minnesota. They're known more for poli sci and uh, computer science and sort of that kind of thing, uh, anthropology, stuff like that. But they had a music department and it was like kind of perfect for me because with my performance anxiety and like not really knowing what I wanted to do at the time, it was kind of great to go there and just sort of get to explore. And they had a cool uh, electronic music lab there, which was really, it was, the class was called electronic music. It should have been called electronic music of the 1970s. It was literally just like all tape decks and they had a Moog modular and stuff like that. So it was like really coming from the 1960s and seventies, experimental electronic music, uh world and we weren't we were we did one day on midi in that class (laughs) one day out of a whole semester on midi and i remember being like oh i understand midi i'm like you know i know what i'm doing and i would like use it to create things that were impossible for humans to play uh because the point of that class is to like really explore right and so I learned a lot about recording and just how to be creative using that old technology. And it has transitioned well into, you know, now analog synths are like, knowing how to use analog synths is really, really useful for what I do on a daily basis. Even just the basics is really useful. So learning that in that class was a big help for sure. That class, by the way, was self graded. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, I went to kind of AFP school. And uh, I Did got you know, an AMI. A minus.
0: Yeah.
1: Wow. I got an A minus. <laughs> yeah. My, my instructor was like, why not an A? And I was like, well, you know, I guess uh, only Allah is perfect. <laughs> but uh, it was, uh, you know, I was trying to be humble, I guess. But that that's probably like the story of my life, right? Like uh, I, I give myself an A minus. I mean, Anyways. I guess,
0: yeah, as soon as an artist thinks their music is perfect, then why would you go on and make right. more stuff?
1: Yeah. I don't, I have more to learn. I I felt like I had more to learn, you know, and I always feel like that, you know, I work, I work on, you know, especially with Rick and Morty, like it's such a diverse, like, uh, you know, there's a palette for the main score and you know, 95% of what I write is main score, the same kind of thing over and over again. But I also want to explore new ways to do that. But also like, you know, I just get thrown these random requests. So I need to be able to learn quickly. And, and, you know, I worked on commercials for a long time, I still do now and then. And that is a job that will keep you on your toes big time. Like you, you might do, be doing orchestral one day, big band jazz the next day, uh, you know, dubstep the following day. Like you have to know how to do everything or at least how to like fake it, right? And so being able to like, being able to embrace learning and advancing your knowledge of music in all possible areas was was really important in that job. Right.
0: So you go from college to working at a company called Emoto. Yep. And I mean, when you got there, was it just immediately, "Hey, we we have this request to do a big band thing," or did they kind of try to figure out what you do different than other people? Or
1: well, when I got there, I was an intern. So what I did was I got people coffee and I drove all over town delivering. This was in 2000 when I was an intern, so we didn't deliver anything via the internet yet. It was all delivered hand delivered or shipped. So I would be sending. I would be driving three quarter inch tapes or CDs uh, or VHS tapes all over town to deliver to our clients, or I'd be preparing the packaging to be delivered every night. So I was, you know, I was an, I was a dub room assistant basically, but as an intern, I wasn't even that. The cool thing was that I got to work in the studio one during off hours when nobody else was working. So I got to try my hand at composing for commercials and sort of just started, uh, once they hired me as the dub room assistant, you know the idea was like hey you can learn how to become a composer while you also drive all over town and get coffee and stuff so i would go in the studio at night when nobody else was there and i would work on the same stuff they were working on and pretty it wasn't too long maybe within 3 months where i was able to submit uh, demos on a couple of spots and i got one almost immediately luckily wow i also i often wonder like if i hadn't gotten that one um, would, I, would the next one have been soon enough to keep me there? You know what I mean? Like, right. Well, when I started um, at Mophonics
0: as an intern, I remember yeah. there was a kid who was a, a fellow intern. I mean, we were the same basically. And we both were the ones who wanted to like, focus on music making as opposed to the business side.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: he submitted this thing for a Microsoft ad and got like a huge paycheck that paid for the semester at NYU. Wow, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And then
0: I think they kept him around after that, and I was just kind of like, on to the next one,
1: next year. Yeah, next yeah. internship. Um, yeah, it's funny because you, it, there's so much luck involved with when you're pitching against 30 people like you are in commercials. They're so competitive, right. and you're demoing against so many people that if you spike one like that, it's almost like winning, you know, it's like kind of like winning the lottery, Like, if you got the winning ticket, like, you just happen to be in the right headspace on the right day at the right time. Like, I look at the Wizards of Waverly Place theme song that way. Like, I competed against probably 20 different submissions for that. Yeah. You know? There's some great songwriters on, I mean, just the album soundtrack they put out. Yeah. The Disney guys, like, the guys they had on staff at the time were, like, really hard to beat really hard to beat and right. honestly i look back at that song that i wrote for that and i'm like where did this come from like it was just like a good day for me you know like i i like woke up on the right side of the bed and had a great idea and was able to like implement it in a way that really worked really well and it's one of the pieces of music i'm really proud of that i've written in my life that i think like just kind of happened in a way instead of you know i didn't really struggle with that one Right. Uh, So, so I, you know, it's just like, if you're, like you said, the other intern at Mophonics, he just like woke up on the right side of the bed that one day slammed a huge, a huge job like that. And then they were like, well, this guy's great. We got to keep him around, you know, like, and you know, I wrote a lot of music at Emoto a lot. I was writing three, four, five tracks a week. Right. And sometimes more. And let me tell you, a significant percentage of them were very bad. (laughs) Like you just can't always write amazing shit every day. That
0: was like the biggest thing I learned once I moved to LA was I was starting to meet some of my favorite producers and composers and Mm -hmm. you check out some of like your favorite composers mock-ups and the string sounds are so bad, but then you realize they're going to replace it with a real work anyways. That's how they usually get the idea down or like your favorite producers, uh, like one I met who was showing me what he thought was the coolest new sound he made, and the whole track was just clipping, and I couldn't hear the snare drum; it was so loud.
1: Wow! And yeah, I and mean, you realize like matter, they yeah. just
0: make a hundred beats a day, yeah. and a couple happen to be good.
1: Yeah, don't stop. Like when you're when it's like a bulk game like that it's like don't stop right like just keep going if it's peaking or whatever just deal with it later right (laughs) you know sometimes when you're just outputting that much con like that much music every day and and the idea is like you want to buy as many lottery tickets as possible like it kind of makes sense to just keep going although you know you really shouldn't be peaking like that if you can help (laughs) it it's not that hard to avoid
0: (laughs) like he thought it was the new sound but well maybe i mean if you did on
1: purpose right
0: always try to just experiment in that way too. And I find the accidents tend to lead to part of your signature sound, whatever that might be.
1: (laughs) When I was in second grade, I had an art teacher who said no mistakes, only opportunities. Mm. Like, you know, being like, if you color outside the lines, just, you know, fix the lines so that it now that whatever, the person has a big giant horn on his head or something, right? Whatever. Like that, the idea being like, you can, you can really turn any mistake into something, new and exciting so like I totally get that like yeah if it's peaked and it sounds cool to you then it's it might be cool
0: yeah I mean nothing intentionally had distortion when people started recording back when
1: right like yeah you know Motown singers weren't purposefully uh, creating analog distortion on their vocals it's just the way it was recorded you know I I think up until you really got me when
0: when they literally took a razor blade and chopped up the speaker cabinet. Right I don't think people have been trying to get that type of thing, and now it's used all the time,
1: yeah, yeah, no, it's like a part of the sound like that's like if you're trying to do a Motown thing, then you do that on right. purpose, you know, and the digital the digital distortion is not the same, like you need the right plugins to make that work. were there
0: any crazy recording things you tried at Emoto or later on in life that people were just like, "What are you doing?
1: hmm?" You know, there wasn't a lot of time to experiment a ton, to be honest, because we were like trying to create fully fleshed out, like fully mixed mastered demos in a day. And for Um, those who don't do ads, like, can you talk about the timelines for? Yeah, I mean, so sometimes we would get, sometimes we'd have a creative call and then it would be, we'd have a couple days to deliver. Right. Um, But sometimes we'd get a call at 3 p.m. on a Friday and be like, hey, can you send us stuff tomorrow morning? You know, it just depends like the, the schedules can be insane and they're looking for the highest quality product you can deliver in that time. So, you know, we would book sessions with musicians and stuff, Friday nights, late, late Friday nights. It would be like, all right, the, you know, they call at six or at three. We talk about it. We talk through the creative and then it's like, okay, we better book musicians for eight. Go write your track. You got a few hours to write a three, a 30 second track for these musicians to play And so you had to work fast and, uh, it was, it, you, you got really good, you know, you just got really fast. Like speed was one of the most important factors of working on ads. And I think it's pretty important in TV too, especially live action. Like you just have no time at all. Yeah.
0: Most of the shows we do, it's five days really to score the whole episode. Yep. Yep. It's nuts.
1: I, I'm thankful I'm in animation. <laughs> yeah, for a while I was like, "Oh, I'm going to get pigeonholed in animation," and now I'm like, "Actually, I prefer animation. Like, I want the, I love the long, like having having a like a locked timing cut like six months before it airs is really really valuable. For sure. So you can freak out two weeks before it airs again later. <laughs> yeah, I will freak out two weeks before it airs, but like most of the work will at least be done by then. I'll be freaking out about maybe one or two cues instead of the whole thing. <laughs> So you go
0: from Emoto and you start to realize that ads are kind of going in terms of like the big money isn't there. That's that there was when you started
1: the big, yeah. I mean, ads were bigger money when I started for sure in, in 2000, Uh, the budgets got smaller, 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 smaller over the years, 2008, in particular with the, the whole mini recession we had or whatever, whatever size it was that really hurt budgets and, it got to be more of a bulk game than uh, like they weren't look, they were looking for libraries basically. Um, And I still did, I still worked with Emoto and I was a freelancer for them starting in 2011. I went freelance with that, but I was still like working with them on a regular basis. And um, you know, majority of my income was coming from ads still. But that's also when I started working on Rick and Morty, which the timing could not have been more perfect, obviously. As soon as I go freelance with Emoto, now I've got this new project that turns out to be a massive hit. Got very lucky there, but um, but I had always kind of wanted to transition to television. I f- was sort of more intrigued by television. Hmm. Um, I you know, even though television is just like it's just one more layer removed from advertising, um, it it was like just more fun to work on something that was made to be creative instead of to sell a product. It is made ultimately to sell a product, you know, like television is made to sell advertising, which is made to sell a product. Right. But, um, it was, it was fun to be like even one more layer removed from the product selling and just do, and, you know, and also kind of like at that point, it was just like, I want to work with my friends and my friends are making cool stuff. So And your friends, I mean, so
0: you did Doc and Marty, the original, I guess, almost the pilot for Rick and Morty in 2006,
1: right? That sounds right. Maybe 2007. I don't remember. So that was still Um, while you're working at Emoto. Yep. No, actually, uh, Justin and Dan were actually at Emoto. We used to use Emoto as a place to shoot, to film uh, internet shorts. Uh, Because I was involved in Channel 101, which is like an internet short community. It was before YouTube, but we would make these like five-minute TV shows, right? And it was kind of a film festival every month in LA. And so I met Justin and Dan through there, and uh, there was a show they were filming at Emoto at night. It was like everybody always wanted an office space to film, right? Because they were writing office-related shows. And Emoto was a good place to film because... No one was there. I would just stay and we'd film. And so Justin was there uh, just being, he was an actor in a show and he was like, Oh, you do music. Right. And I was like, yeah, that's what we do here. And he's like, Oh cool. I have this new channel one one show I'm working on. Uh, it's like a, it's like a parody back to the future. Do you think you could do like a little, uh, little sitcom style transitions using the back to the future, um, music not not the alan silvestri score but the um huey lewis song uh and i was like yeah i could probably do that and so like while they were filming i just i just did one really quick with guitar and roads and stuff you know wow and you know um that's a couple hours tops then yeah no i was it would probably only took one hour it was you know it was a three second transition right just to show him like hey this is what you could do this right and, uh, you can see those on Doc and Marty and those characters, Doc, the Doc and Marty characters became Rick and Morty later. Yeah. For
0: sure. So that's
1: the first time I worked with Justin. I had worked with Dan a little bit before then on something or other. I don't remember what, but that was the first time I worked with Justin. And from then on, it was like, I, I love those guys. I think they make amazing stuff. So I was like, yes, I'll do whatever you, whatever you want. I'll do it, you know, for, for a long time. And, uh, we just made funny internet shows and stuff like that. Gotcha.
0: I think that's cool. I mean, I think you said like none of the Channel One Hundred One stuff really brought in any. Like, you don't never did the music for a Channel One Hundred One thing to make any money.
1: No, um, I don't think I ever got paid for a Channel One Hundred One show, and I wouldn't have asked for money because nobody gets money for those things. It's not in the spirit of Channel One Hundred One to ask for money. It's really kind of a boot camp for young filmmakers and writers. And a lot of the people I know that I sort of cut my teeth with at Channel 101 are now like working on real TV shows, working in Hollywood as writers and comedy writers and stuff. So it's, it, or animators or whatever. So it, it's a really, it's still going on. You can still go to it. You've been, um, and it's a great place for people who are sort of like just figuring, finding their way in LA to go and meet people and work on cool, funny stuff.
0: For sure. Were there any other types of communities you found, or was that just the like as soon as you got there that was the one? In so terms of question. like, did you try out? I don't know the other
1: film festivals and that type of thing. I I did a twenty four hour film festival once with some people, but I knew them from Channel One Hundred One. So gotcha. Um, uh, but I was everything
0: just, relates to
1: Channel. Yeah, 101. I mean, I just was so into Channel One Hundred One, and it was taking up so much of my time. There was one. There was one month where I worked on through three of the five primetime shows that Ow. like got voted back like i i was working on so many shows for a while for for Channel 101 cuz it was just like i loved it i loved the people it was like a fun community i didn't really need to go anywhere else i would have been too i was too busy i was also working a day job you know right so. With crazy unpredictable hours. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. My wife was ever so patient during those times for sure. (laughs) I couldn't have done it without her. You know, she was taking care of stuff at home and she had a job too. So it was, uh, you know, we were younger, but so we could, we had the energy, but. Sure. Do you find the hours more flexible these days? Very much so. Yeah. I mean, I work from home now. Back then I worked in an office, you know, I'd go every day, nine to six, at least often longer. Uh, but now I work from home. So I set my own hours and, uh, you know, I, I also understand the value of having people help you, (laughs) which I, at first, when I first went freelance, I didn't do that. Um, but now I have the luxury of having people help me on others on what, you know, whatever I need. But, um, so yeah, I try to keep my hours reasonable. It's not always possible, definitely not. Um and we we don't have kids, so that makes things a little easier. I know some of my fellow composers who have kids, it's tougher on them for sure, but yeah, especially right
0: now with coronavirus. <laughs> yeah,
1: I know. Yeah. Definitely. Um yeah, it's tough. It's definitely tough.
0: So what are your typical days like? Like do you set I know that you're a big QDB fan and you can see exactly how many minutes of music you have to write per a deadline. Yeah. Um, shout out to Sebastian, but...
1: Love QDB.
0: Um, do you, I mean, you write every day, I assume.
1: I try to take weekends off now, but yeah. Nice, okay. Uh, yeah, but I do like, I do write a little bit at least every day, you know, depending on how what my workload is. I I usually shoot for two minutes of music, but sometimes I got to do more. Right, um, It just depends on how things are going and what, what I'm working on. But yeah, uh, usually I'll, I'll, I I try to work on one project at a time if I can help it. It doesn't always work that way. There was times where it was like a really, really busy period of my career. I was working on four shows and I didn't have a lot of help. And so I was like working we my weekend days were, were, were set for this one show and then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday for another show. And then Thursday, Friday for the other show. Wow, just like, that's how I would do it. Uh, that was brutal, I'll never do that again. Um, it was awful. Uh, so now <laughs> I learned my lesson, you know. Uh, it's okay to ask for help, right? Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, so like, yeah, I'll try to, I usually work uh, 10 to six, 10 to seven or something. And then maybe I'll work again late at night. Gotcha. Uh, my wife goes to bed, yeah. So it is somewhat nonstop still. Except for the yeah, But it's my career, so it's not right. that bad. Yeah, and I, I take weekends off and, I, you know, I take a lot of breaks, play some video games. You got to recharge once in a while, you know. It's good to hear. It's it's, it's crazy so right now, though, because I hear of all these people who, like, can't go to work, don't have anything going on. Right. Um, and for them, it's like, it. for them, it's like a lot of anxiety, right? They're like, well, I'm not making money. Uh, but they're also kind of like, they have a snow day, you know, they're like, get the day off or whatever. And to me, I'm like, oh, man, I want a snow day. <laughs> but well, I have is, too much music to write.
0: I have so many friends who have the snow day thing where it's the first time they've had time off in a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just no idea what to do.
1: I know. Well, that's a problem. Like I, last year I took vacation, right? I was like, I'm going to take this month, whole month off. Cause I've been so busy and I, we have a break in production. I'm going to take a whole month off. And it was like three days in, I'm just pulling my hair out. I'm like, I don't know what to do with myself. You know, like, um, so yeah, I totally get it. Um, you want those days off. And then when they come, you're like,
0: <laughs> sure. you know. I think something interesting about you is you, you do make music in your free time that's not related to TV or film just for fun, right?
1: Pretty rarely, actually. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> um, I do remixes now and then if given the opportunity, uh, which is definitely fun and not related to TV. Um, I, done a, I did one uh, last year for Super Organism, uh, sweet, a really cool band from UK, Australia, and Japan. Uh, they're from all over. I wonder what they're doing. I got to hit, hit them up and see how they're handling this. Uh, right. I know so many of my friends that are in bands have canceled tours, and it's like brutal. Like, they, this is just like a whole year's worth of income. Possibly yeah. longer.
0: I mean, we don't know, and that's yeah. the crazy thing.
1: Yeah. Hopefully you can yeah, listen back to this rough. and
0: think what were they thinking
1: (laughs) well yeah hopefully hopefully we I was just saying this today like hopefully we look back and go man we really overreacted
0: right you know like
1: that's the idea right like we want to feel like idiots when this is done (laughs) for sure I mean I was thinking like this obviously is crazy
0: but imagine if aliens ever came or there was I have imagined many times yeah I mean how would we react then
1: (laughs) yeah I know I know uh yeah we can't. We'll. Well, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. I mean, it's still early, so.
0: Right, but so you are keeping busy and you're making music. Very spending busy. Spending time at home, so that's yeah. great. Of curiosity, what's one thing about the job that most people don't know that you wish they did?
1: Well, so this is for other business for other composers, right? Like, yeah, um, yeah. I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I always say, like, I think. I think that, um, you I, I think that your social ability and your ability to connect with other people, both creatively and on a sort of friend to friend basis is probably more important than your skill as a composer. Completely um, agreed. Uh, and I don't think that you should forego one for the other. You still need to be proficient and you still need to deliver on time and in tune, but, um, being able to connect with people and communicate uh, really well about what you're working on and also just other things is just like so, so important. I think as composers, we, tend, we can tend to get like stuck in our room. I mean, right now you have to be stuck in your room, right? But, um, you know, we can tend to like get stuck in our studios and just like working on music, 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 and trying to get better at music. And getting better at music is definitely very important, but also like hanging out with people, being fun to hang out with, like making making time to like connect with other people. I am not a social person. I'm, I would say like, I'm not an extrovert at all, which is probably why I wanted to be a composer and being, in, being into music. But uh, you know, I forced myself to go do social things. Channel 101 was totally a social thing that my wife was like, hey, look at this film festival thing in LA. Why don't we go to that? Hmm. And, and so we did, and like, it was like super fun and, you know, doing these social activities has been really beneficial to my career. Right. And I think it's, it's beneficial to everyone's if they, if they do it. That's funny. I mean, were you ever
0: social, like as a kid or just as early as you remember? I was
1: a nerd, man. I was like a shy nerd. Like I was not, not at all social. And I would say like, it wasn't until until I realized that my career depended on it, that I became more social. Um, When I was in my mid twenties, I read that book, how to win friends and influence people. It's an old, old, old book. Right. But like, it gives a lot of tips on how to, how to connect with people um, and remember them and be memorable to them and be someone that they trust and care about and and trust and care about them, you know? Um, And, and I wish I had read it when I was like in junior high, you know right my whole life would have been different i feel like
0: i mean i remember being as shy as hell until probably my sophomore year of college you come on yeah I, no that sounds crazy <laughs> i mean i was the shy asian kid throughout high school i think yeah and then, even during college and still now i watch a lot of videos on youtube from channel charisma on command and
1: oh that like, yeah try to that, that next level right. stuff really blows my mind like that that stuff, like when people like really try to be charismatic, that's right. like, holy
0: keep cow. your hands open. Don't close yeah, them yeah. next to your body. Or,
1: yeah, that that or seems. That. I, I feel like that's like, if you're if you're running a checklist of things that you should be doing to be more charismatic, then you're probably not going to be charismatic. You know, like you need to do it to the point where it's natural, right? Like people can yeah. see through that so fast. But
0: well, I remember one day of like watching one of those videos on the right before going to class. And then the, I think the lesson was to try to smile more or be actively smiling. Mm-hmm. So I remember just smiling the whole time being on the subway and people just looking at me weirdly.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it is weird. Like and, I, I will do that sometimes too when I'm out in public or, uh, uh, yeah, when I'm out in public, I'll just like try to like, I'll be like, oh, I know I'm not smiling. Let me just smile. And yeah. So, some people do react to it weird, but some, some people are a smile back, you know, like they, They get it. Um, So it it can be a very, I mean, that's kind of a fun thing to try, you know, just. I mean, there's actually
0: a class called uh, the science of happiness that I took my sophomore year. Mm. And we had these like weekly assignments. And one was, I think, just try to find one thing about, uh, or like set a personal goal and just try to like make it achievable. And it was about trying to figure out how to solve problems in your own life. Mm -hmm. Um, I was partnered up with someone and our goal was to, we wanted to like make a friend every day, but instead realize that that might not be too achievable. Like it's hard to like set that. Yeah. I mean, you're talking to five new people every day. Yeah. And the first day I go into the elevator on the way down to walk to class. And there's a guy, I mean, it's winter in New York city. He's got Mm -hmm. a scarf covering his whole face, sunglasses on a hat and giant ass headphones on. I was like, Why not? So I just started talking to him. He wasn't like looking at me at all.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But i learned so much from that though. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I was like, it doesn't matter if like that guy doesn't care that I'm talking at him in the elevator. (laughs) Yeah. And then from there, I just talked to like four other people, whether it's like the person working at, I don't know, just asking the person at Starbucks, how their day's going. And
1: yeah, I mean, it's fun. It's fun to like have positive interactions with people. Like if you just go out and you're just like, shut down the whole time and not interacting with people. Like that's not fun yeah. to me at least. Um, yeah, you know, my, you, you know, about you know this about me, but, uh, I'm obsessed with the TV show survivor on yes. CBS and I have a podcast about it and everything. And that show, like, is very, very, it's very important. It's basically a game show of who can be the most like fun to be around, you know? Um, and, uh, And so like becoming obsessed with that show and then playing like little weekend games of it myself, uh, I definitely like really now value the ability to connect to people instantly like that and be, come to them with an easy smile and someone, and you know, listen and, and all that, all that, all those techniques that like make you good at a game of Survivor also make you good at being a composer to be honest. Because okay. you have to be able to connect with people and listen. Listening is so important, right? Like um, if you're working with a director or a showrunner and they're telling you what they want, you need to be able to listen and hear what they're saying. And also sort of pair it back to them in a way that um, puts your own spin on it, your own take, your own perspective that shows, hey, they get it. Uh, this composer gets it. They're going to deliver something to me that that is fits with my vision and my hopes and dreams for this project and you know like we're not we're not artists as much as we are like um craftsmen you know we we are making we are creating something but we're creating it to specifications that have been determined by someone else usually and so it's really really important that we're able to communicate with those people about what they're looking for and do it in a way that isn't just musical because they don't know you know they don't know flat nine from anything like they're 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 not going to be able to talk about that they're not you can't start rattling off chord progressions to explain how you're going to tackle a mysterious section it's going to mean nothing to them. You have to talk about emotion. You have to talk about feeling and you have to talk about storytelling uh, because they're just, that's their language. That's our, that's our job really. Yeah.
0: In terms of the social aspect, I think it's amazing that you, you practice that and I didn't really know that value. Um,
1: well, it, 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 I wouldn't say like, I, 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 it's not like I stand in front of the mirror and practice smiling. You know what I mean? Sure. But um I'll notice when I'm not smiling in public or something sometimes and I'll go, oh, I need to, let's, let's smile, but let's make it earnest. Let's make it real. Not like, right. a, you know, the, the key is to make it real, which you have to want to, you know, like it sure. can't come, it has to come from a place of actually wanting it to be real.
0: Yeah. But that takes a, I think a level of personal of wanting that type of growth.
1: Totally. Totally. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I still don't know if I'm introverted or extroverted. I mean, I feel like a lot of people think of me as a social person, but I also enjoyed this time being just here. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, you know, some people are what do they call them? Introverted, uh, extroverted, introverts. They they're introverted, but they need re they need social engagements to recharge their energy every so often, mm-hmm. or vice versa. They're extroverted, and they but they need periods of isolation to recharge their their extroversion. Um I I I like to be social, but I don't want to do it every day. Like right. definitely not, you know, once or twice a week at most. <laughs> and certainly like two social engagements in one day, I'm wiped out, you know. Gotcha. Uh, but um I do like it. And uh, you know, a friend of mine who is probably the most extroverted outgoing person I've ever met in my life literally day one of the lockdown had a zoom community built with multiple rooms it's like a town you start off at near the fountain at the center of town and then you can go to the movie theater that amc 16 and there's movies playing on the zoom channel 24 7 and you can go to the food court and meet up with people who are having dinner and like there's like at one point the other night there's like 25 people on there at, at one time like in his zoom chat just like going from room to room and saying hi and stuff wow that's and amazing <laughs> it, it's cool and like these kind of things are going to be really important now like the other night we just had a family game night where we all got on zoom and i hosted a uh, jackbox on a screen and like the our family we played uh, jackbox together you know and i think like learning we got to think outside the box man because like you can't just stay at home by yourself like this what you're doing with this this is a great way to like connect with people you know sure
0: yeah well on that note i think we just have the last segment here which is tech talk a segment where i list off a tech topic and you say as much or as little as you want about it all right uh, so i'm going to hit you with some hard balls i don't know if you're ready
1: but, uh, okay bring it first one da. Uh, well, I use Pro Tools. Um, it's just what I learned. Like I, When I was a kid, I used Cakewalk, obviously, but it was not a really a DAW yet. And then I learned um, Digital Performer in college. And I used that initially when I first started as an intern at Emoto. But between my internship and when I was an employee one year later, they had switched to Pro Tools. So by then, I just started using Pro Tools. And I always have used Pro Tools now. I like that I can now I love that it I can just have my tracks ready for mix right away because every mix house uses pro tools. So you have to deliver in pro tools anyways. Right. So it it's, is it the best for MIDI? No, definitely not. But, um, it's what I'm used to. So that's what I use.
0: Sure. You dock that out of the park. So let's see next we've got synthesizer.
1: Oh man, I have too many of them. Uh, I have my dad's old DX 100. Uh, it's awesome. Wow. I also have a DX seven that I, is in the case still right now. I I keep like, oh, I should sell that. Oh, I should get it out and use it, whatever. Uh, It's a cool keyboard, though. It's just so mm, of one time period, you know. Um, I have a Korg, uh, what's it called, Prologue 16, which is amazing. Uh, I love it. Korg is amazing. Um, And I have a, a Moog Rogue, which is a keyboard they sold at Radio Shack. Under the realistic brand, for a while in the '80s, I think it mines in '81. Uh, it's super pitchy. It's really hard to get it to do anything but sound design. Basically, it's it's monophonic, single oscillator, uh, but it's pretty cool. It's kind of fun to play with.
0: That was actually my favorite synth to play around with in college. We had a Moog at NYU, yeah. and yeah. everything I if I came in trying to like I had a bass sound in mind, I would never be able to make it. With the yeah.
1: No, no, it, it's, it's so hard to craziest. actually control it. Yeah, but you can get cool, weird sounds unexpectedly, like we were talking about earlier, no mistakes, only opportunities, right? The Mogro right. is that, that phrase in a box. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, guitar. Uh, yeah, I have, um, I learned playing, I learned how to play guitar in high school. And I would say like, it's probably my second instrument behind violin but I definitely play it more than violin now. Um, I have a bunch of guitars from, I bought a bunch of like American made, bought American Strat, American uh, Les Paul and uh, P bass. And I bought them all from the year I graduated high school. Cause I'm a nerd. Uh, and I was like, yeah, you bought, I like, like, six
0: guitars when you graduated high school?
1: No, no. I bought them uh, like in 2011 when I went. Gotcha. To okay. Okay. Uh, cause I, I was using the studio guitars and I was like, Oh, right, I'm gonna okay. home. I need guitars. So, but I was like, I'm going to buy them from the year that I graduated high school. So like, gotcha okay. um, and it's funny because the bass is like so high five for a P bass because that time they just were like really crystal loud, clear, like, you know, like all those like nineties rock bands were just like, so the bass is just yeah. so pristine
0: all the attack Um, and
1: yeah there's tons of attack on it but i love it because of that like it's a such a it's a sound that you just cannot get on a vintage bass or you know and it sounds like the strings are new all the time even when they're not oh that's awesome yeah yeah
0: and that's the type Uh, of thing it's hard to get with samples too
1: totally totally well i i would never use samples for an electric bass mainly because i know how to play it at least reasonably well but also because i just don't they always sound cheesy to me I don't. Yeah. I think guitar, bass, they just haven't nailed yet.
0: Yeah, I think that's going to be some of the hardest stuff to get right. It, like... It's
1: you can do it if it's like a really specific thing, but I guess that's the case for any instrument, right? Like even a violin patch, which there's some really good ones out there, is going to be slightly limited. You're going to want to use it in ways that that are work well with the sample and not in ways that don't, right? Right. Excuse it's a funny me, thing yeah. where you
0: where you have to play to the... Sp- the strength of the samples.
1: Totally. I mean, that's what I do on Rick and Morty. That's why you like, that's why I make certain creative decisions that I do because I'm like, if I try to do something different than this, it's not going to sound real. Right. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Yeah.
0: And on that topic the last uh last note half here for tech talk is theremin specifically
1: <laughs> the uh the theme song oh man um that is actually not a real theremin, but it sounds like one um it's uh it's from a a synth that I had. I, I'm hesitant to say what synth it is. <laughs> it's gotcha. so, but, because it's so... Because it's a
0: sample of another song.
1: <laughs> no, it's not. But uh, I played that on, on a synth. But it's a it's a VST. Um, gotcha. And, uh, yeah, you know, when I think of Theremin, I think of Carolina Icke, like the greatest Theremin player alive. Um, she's incredible. I saw her perform in L.A. a couple of years ago. Um, and her precision on the Theremin is... Just Google Carolina EYCK. Oh, she's incredible. She's from, yeah, you've seen her. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know how she does it. It's like magic. It's yeah. unbelievable. It's the craziest instrument to try to get right. It... To be precise, like I know the melody for Rick and Morty is like not that easy to play on theremin, and I'm sure she could just like nail it right away. She says incredible precision. She sounds like she's playing it on a keyboard. It's so good. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. But she still has, I mean, that's the thing with the therapy. There's the artistry level to of expression. It, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah,
1: absolutely. It's not just
0: playing in tune.
1: Right. Because, um, yeah, you're controlling the volume with the, with the right hand? No. I think so, right? right uh, hand. Left hand. Yeah. Left hand's volume. I guess it depends on if you're left or right-handed. Right, right? Yeah. I think she does. Yeah, she's the right hand. She does this. this. I play
0: theremin left-handed.
1: <laughs> it's like this is an A. This is a B flat. This is a C sharp. <laughs> you know, it's right. like it's so crazy. And then the left hand, she's like controlling the volume and the and the pitch, the the range, right? Sure. Um, yeah, unbelievable. Highly recommend checking her out. To anyone who's watching this, if you don't, if you're unfamiliar with her, she's amazing.
0: Yeah. Well, that's the the homework for all you guys and gals listening. Uh, yeah. Ryan Elder, thank you so much for being on. And Thanks, Matt. Yeah. This was fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of Composer Talk. If you like what we're doing, feel free to follow us on Instagram or Facebook. The show is mixed and sounds great thanks to the incredible Eric Bard, who's also a talented composer, producer, and mixer. Until next time, this has been Matthew Wong.